Before we go into the sermon, I just want to let you know as well that uh, Tolly Twing, Ken's mom, is uh, very close to death. And so please pray for the Twings. I'm going to pray for them here in just a moment and that God would ease her passing. It's time for her to go. But at, at the same time, death still remains an enemy. There's a lot of, a lot of tough, difficult things. So let me just pray. Father, we pray for Tolly. We pray that you would uh, make her faith strong. Even if she can't express that outwardly through words, um, Lord, may you continue her faith. And may when she sees you faith to faith, face, see your smiling face upon her. I pray that you would also help Ken and Linda and Lacey um, and Phil, Ken's brother, as they uh, just go through this hard time. It is not easy. And... Uh, there's a mixture of feelings and uh, loss and memories and still the struggle of caring for someone at the end of their life, all those things. We pray, Father, you'd be merciful to the Twing family. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in Genesis 20. If you're a visitor here today, I am going through the book of Genesis. So, in um, today's passage is uh, one that is both encouraging and very frustrating. It is encouraging because we see the incredible faithfulness of God as he fulfills his covenant promises to Abraham in spite of Abraham's faithlessness. But it is frustrating because we want to see Abraham do better. And we don't want him to do better just because he's our hero, and he is our hero, according to Hebrews 11. We want him to do better because we want to believe that we can do better. The truth is that Abraham does do better. His story is not yet over, but I find it very... important, frustratingly helpful, that God gives us chapter 20. He doesn't skip over it. He doesn't just go from chapter 17 to chapter 22. He places chapter 20 in here for us. I actually believe if we don't understand chapter 20, we don't understand salvation rightly. So let's read the text before us today. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream. By night, and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister, and she herself said, He is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. 
Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place, and and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me, do me. At every place in which we come, say of me, he is my brother." Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you and before everyone who are vindicated. Everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. When we last saw Abraham, he was interceding for Sodom. He was concerned for his nephew Lot. He was also concerned that the God of all the earth would not punish the righteous with the wicked. And God hears the prayers of Abraham. Lot is saved along with his daughters. Now I wonder, it really, you know, when you see the things that God does include in Scripture, always understand that he has a point. You may not always know why he includes these things, but he has a point. Because there are so many questions that you have that he doesn't answer, that when he does say something, you go, oh yeah, he has a point here. Don't you wonder if Lot and Abraham ever met again? I mean, do they ever talk? Lot said, man, who got me out of there? And Abraham said, yeah, I was praying for you. You know, I mean, there's, we don't know any of that. We understand here that Lot, uh, he goes to a cave and flees to a cave. Abraham moves to Gerar. Now, Gerar is, is moving towards the coast of the Mediterranean. It's, it's where present-day Gaza is. And it's, it's hill country. It's good grazing ground. It's not incredibly fertile. It can be dry there. Um, But you have to understand, and this is another thing I try to bring out as much as I can, Abraham is 100 years old. Sarah is 90 years old. Can you imagine picking up? I don't care how many servants you are to have help you. Picking up and moving to a new home to live in and fearing for your life? And when you think of that, 25 years prior to this, God had told Abraham to leave his home and he would give him another home. And here Abraham is still 25 years later going, where is my home? Not easy. You you read it and you're just, yeah, Abraham, he moved. Who cares? That's a big deal he moved. The older I get, the less I want to move. 
And as you read this story, you go, you go, is this deja vu? I heard this before. You know, haven't we, haven't we done this story before? And in fact, we have. In Genesis 12, Abraham had gone down to Egypt. And there he was afraid for his life. And there he actually says the same lie of deception to the Pharaoh at that time. We've been here before. And so we ask ourselves, why does Abraham have to do this again? Why must he have another season of unfaithfulness? Hasn't he learned this lesson? Of course, we should all be saying, hmm, I have to learn repeated lessons as well, don't I? And I think it was this story, maybe other stories, maybe David with Bathsheba, I don't know, but this story and others that, that are in uh, Paul's mind as he, uh, in 2 Timothy, ponders this, this common saying, we don't even know exactly where the saying comes from, in 2 Timothy 11-13. through So let me just read it to you again. Danny read it during the, the uh, scripture reading. The saying is trustworthy. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now just briefly, as kind of setting up this, this whole story, I want to just, uh, just make some statements about those four statements in 2 Timothy. The first one is, if we died with him, we will also live with him. That makes perfect sense. It speaks of our union with Christ, right? Um, it, is a, it is a promise to us that as we trust in Jesus Christ, we, are, we, we have died with him on the cross, and we were promised new obedience, that we would walk in obedience to him, maybe not imperfectly in this, or perfectly in this life, but certainly perfectly in eternity. And so this, this promise, you died with him, you live with him. Isn't that encouraging? Second one is, we, if we endure, we will reign with him. In other words, if we will endure the sufferings of this life and not shrink away from that, and, and even persecution, if we say, yes, I'm enduring this because I love my Lord, then we will reign with him. That makes perfect sense. Uh, the third statement makes sense as well. If we deny him, he'll deny us. So the, the idea of, forget you, Jesus, I'm going my own way doing my own thing, you know, this complete denial of him, utterly rejecting Jesus, turning away from him as like, I don't believe in your promises anymore, on the judgment day, you'll experience him denying you. I mean, those are all just, they're just clear statements, they make sense to us, but the fourth statement doesn't even fit the pattern. You want to hear a but, you want to hear some kind of contrast. There's not even a contrast in it. It just says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. What does that even mean? Sounds good. I heard some people saying, mm, amen, as we, Danny read it earlier. But, but what does that even mean? What does that look like? That's, this is the lesson of Genesis 20, I believe. Not just me. It's, it, it's clear from the majority of commentators that I read. God has staked his entire name, his entire reputation 
on being faithful to fulfill his promises to Abraham. If those promises were only so good as Abraham remained faithful, Genesis 20 would nullify all the promises. If if the promises depend on Abraham's faithfulness, Sarah lives out her days in a harem in Gerar. Abraham would have been forgotten. And let me tell you, the gospel would be forever changed. Actually, I would say there would be no gospel. What sort of gospel would it be if I told you, you can have salvation if you will remain perfectly faithful the rest of your life? Could you be saved? I couldn't. At the same time, at the same time, it, 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 you, can't, you can't say that without saying this. If the gospel is not going to leave you faithless. I mean, that wouldn't be a gospel, would it? We need somehow a gospel that is able to deal with our faithlessness and yet make us faithful. Now, the only person that will know that, or two, Daniel know it, but uh, is Mike here? There he is, Mike's here. He, Mike actually took classes from this guy, John Curran. But I was reading his commentary on this passage of Scripture. And this is what he says. And I'll probably read this twice to you here and then later on because it's such a powerful quote. Each of us has deeply worn channels of a corrupt nature. Besetting sins that refuse to let us go. And these sins come in cycles. They revisit us Time and time again. Similar situations lead us to act in a similar vein. But as in the case of Abraham, God continues to bring the situations upon us, very very important, so that we should see our sin and that we should turn to him that we should trust him and realize he will protect us. Such repetitive cycles highlight our besetting sins, but they also point to a solution which is complete trust and faith in God. That is so helpful. When a Christian struggles in a besetting sin or repeated sin or fails again, and he begins to say, why is this still here? What is going on with me? We have to understand God's sovereign faithfulness. 
We need to understand that we need to turn away from our faithlessness. We need to repent and turn back to God. But we also need to understand that our faithlessness is not larger than God's faithfulness. And that's easier said than done. Our failures bring us to doubt God's good work of salvation. We want to know why God has not made us perfectly faithful yet. And I love this story, and I'm frustrated with this story. Because it, it speaks to my own heart. Let's walk through the text. Abram said to Sarah, of Sarah his wife, she is my sister. Verse 2, and Abimelech king of Gerar sent and took Sarah. You understand, Abimelech is taking Sarah into his harem. He's going to have her for himself. God had promised that Abraham and Sarah would have a child together. If God does not intercede at this moment, it's done. It's done. And he doesn't intercede because Abraham is pleading for him to intercede. Look at verse 3. I've said this before, but two of the best words in all of Scripture, whenever you see this, but God. It's the best verses, the best words. Abraham, heading down, but God. God intercedes in verse 3, comes in a dream, and he says to Abimelech, you're a dead man. I'm thinking, wow, imagine what you would feel like. If that occurred, he gives him a stern warning. He says, you have taken another man's wife. And in Abimelech's understanding, in his uh, corrupted and yet still having a little bit of the, uh, uh, the, the image of God in him, he believes that it is wrong to take another man's wife. He's okay with having multiple wives, which is not good, but he, but he at least his, his understanding says it is wrong to take another man's wife. That's better than what Pharaoh had. Pharaoh didn't have that understanding, but that's where he is. It's very important that, that morally speaking, Abimelech has the high ground on Abraham. This whole encounter, though, is not about adultery. It's about somebody possibly overcoming the promise of God. God's concern for Abraham and Sarah does not mean that he has no concern for Abimelech. In fact, God is going to use Abraham's faithlessness to lead Abimelech to the truth. God accuses Abimelech of sin, warns him, and then Abimelech defends himself and wins the case. Think about that. A pagan winning the case before a holy God. Now, we are told repeatedly in this text that Abimelech never touches Sarah. That's that's one of the key things. God has said, no, she's mine. I'm going to protect her. So it's really pretty amazing. 
Uh, Abimelech pleads ignorance. He didn't know. He was lied to. Abraham is the one at fault. And God says, yeah, you're right. You're right. Verse 6. Now, if Abimelech had not acted in ignorance, I don't know this, but I'm, I, I, I think there is a real possibility, I think God may have just killed him on the spot. If he purposely just wanted to take out his, his man, that was it. And God seems to say to him, I knew that you did this with the integrity of your heart. That's why I'm coming to you in a dream. That's why I'm, that's why I'm uh, you know, warning you so that you can change your behavior. I don't want you to die in this. And he, at this time, he reveals to Abimelech that Abraham is a prophet. Now, there's not a whole lot said about this as a prophet, but what you need to understand, in Abimelech's mind, that means, oh, the prophet is the one who will teach me the truth about God and about salvation, and in particularly about the God who's just now talking to me in this dream. Okay? So just follow this, this rationale. Abraham has sinned against Abimelech. And God says, oh yeah, but he's my prophet. If you want to know about me, if you want to know about my covenant love, you're going to have to go to him. Just think about this. If Abraham had offered his wife, right, and then he came right up here and stood to preach to you, you'd be like, I want to learn from him. You see how, like, this is, this is really powerful stuff. It's, it's scary almost. He will pray for you and you'll live. I mean, I could just, my own heart would be like, but I'm the one in the right. I should be praying for him. Then God gives another warning. He says, look, if you don't return this woman, you're dead. And all who are in your household are going down. And this fits perfectly with the original promise in Genesis 12. Those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. God is talking to Abimelech, but he is speaking to us and to Abraham. You see, Abraham gets into this situation because he does not believe God will take care of him. And through God's intervention, God is teaching Abraham that his faithfulness is larger than Abraham's faithlessness. Abimelech heeds the warning. He tells his servants. His servants are very much afraid. We're not told yet why they're afraid. That'll come in verse 17 and 18. But we, they, it's like they all go, oh yeah, we better take care of Sarah and Abraham. They all agree. And this, I think, is a very important step in, the, in this uh, process because if you're a king and you take someone into your harem and then you immediately send them out again, it's like, why did you do that? It would almost brought shame on him. And, and it, it just he explains to them what's going on. And in all of this, everybody in Abimelech's household is going, oh, so this man, Abraham, is the prophet of whom we must learn about salvation. Uh, 
what I think is also amazing is that Abimelech doesn't grovel before Abraham. He actually confronts Abraham. And I believe that Abimelech's confrontation of Abraham is what Abraham needs. I see it as a, as a confrontation of God to Abraham. You didn't trust me. You lied because you didn't trust my promises. And Abraham gives this, this fullest explanation of why he doesn't uh, tell, why he wasn't truthful with Abimelech. But you know what he could have said? could have said one statement. I didn't believe my God would take care of me. That's what he could have said. And when it comes to you and I's sin, that's what it boils down to. When I choose to sin, when you choose to sin, you're in some way saying the promise of God that he will care for me, that's not good enough. I've got to do it my own way. I've got to somehow make myself happy or bring about my own uh, peace and joy. I cannot just simply resign myself to my God who has promised goodness to me. And I believe Abraham gets this, the message. Because I do believe that Abraham in chapter 22, and we're going to get there in a few weeks, but when he, in chapter 22, I believe Abraham is willing to sacrifice Isaac because he trusts that God will fulfill his promises. There's nothing I can do. Danny told me this this week. He said, if, God's, if Abraham's faithlessness can't stop God's faithfulness, then Abraham's obedience will not destroy the promise either when he's willing to sacrifice his only son. Okay. Abimelech takes sheep, oxen, male servants, female servants, gives gives 150 years of salary to Abraham for Sarah. That's a thousand uh, silver pieces or whatever. It's like it would take a laborer 150 years to earn that much silver. That's a lot of gifts. And he basically says, she is clean. I did nothing. You know, there's, she's being honored and all of this. And then in verse 17, Abraham prays to God. And God heals Abimelech. And he heals Abimelech's wife and female slaves, and they bore children. Wow. God had done something. We didn't know this we don't, until now. We, he had done something somehow that was visible to everyone in the household that, that they either couldn't have sex or couldn't bear children or something right away. It was clear, and he removes it at this time. And he removes it because this man who has sinned against him prays for him. Bruce Walke says it well, although Abraham is in the wrong, Abimelech must ask Abraham, God's elect instrument of salvation, to intercede for him, God's human covenant partner, who nearly brought death to Abimelech by his scheming, is still the means by which God gives life and blessing. Oh, it's nice when you're sitting on the mountain, not the mountain, but he's overlooking Sodom and he's saying, God, save them. Now, in the moment of his being unrighteous, God still says, you're going to pray 
to bring blessing. Now, some may twist this into teaching that it's okay to remain unfaithful. Well, that's, that's silly. We know that from the rest of Scripture. And I remind you of Curid's quote. Each of us has deeply worn channels of a corrupt nature, besetting sins that refuse to let us go. And these sins come in cycles. They revisit us time and time again. Similar situations lead us to act in a similar vein. But as in the case of Abraham, God continues to bring the situations upon us so that we should see our sin, that we should turn to him, that we should, so that we should trust him and realize he will protect us. Such repetitive cycles highlight our besetting sins, but they also point to the solution, which is complete trust in God. Have you fled to Jesus? Are you trusting in Him and not yourself? This is my besetting sin. My default is to come back and trust in myself. That's that's my default. If Jesus isn't working real good, then I'm going to figure out myself. I'm going to do it. But when you believe in Jesus, he unites you to himself. There is a spiritual bond such that where Jesus ends and you start is like, how do you figure that out? Because you were united to him. And you are to hear this. The promises that Jesus has earned for you are yours. And those promises are not dependent on your perfect faithfulness. I'm telling you, you will struggle your whole life to figure this out. I thought I figured it out when I was 15, and I'm still trying to figure it out today. When you endure pain, when you endure suffering, when, you, when these deeply ingrained channels of fear and unbelief raise their ugly head in your life, you will be tempted to disobey. And I'm telling you, as life goes on, God will prove himself faithful to his elect. Your faithfulness does not rest upon you. It rests upon being united to Jesus Christ. He can no sooner be unfaithful to you than he could be unfaithful to Jesus. That's why it says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, many of you know that I have a, this uh, p- picture. I had to turn it around because I didn't want everybody to think that we're having idols in worship. Uh, of Geronimo. That is a man that's got a lot of pain in his life. And I have this picture on the wall Anytime I counsel somebody in my office, I'm looking at this picture. You think, why would I do that? Why would I, why would I have that picture in my office? Well, Geronimo is a very interesting guy. And I think he helps us in all this that we're talking about today. So I'm going to try to end this with his story, some details of it. When he's a young man, pagan, not knowing Christ at all, he's married, has a couple young kids, And the Mexicans come and destroy, kill his kids when he's away, and his wife, murder them. So you can imagine the grief of going through that kind of pain in your life. What kind of fears that would put in you over, and not only fears, but anger and frustration. And he goes on a tirade. 
He probably has killed more Mexicans than any one man alive. Vengeance. He's a murderer. Talk about other. You imagine living with the guilt of that. Live with the struggle of just killing people. Not just the people that killed his wife and kids, but anybody close to them. So he's killing innocent people. He's got a lot to account for, right? Well, he's on the run. He's never a chief in his, in his, in his land, but he's a, he's a very uh, a well-respected warrior chief in his, in his uh, tribe. And, but then as the Americans come and they keep squeezing the land away, you know, he's a troublemaker, and so they chase him down. They spend, I think at some time, like over 50% of the American forces that we had after the Civil War were focused on trying to catch Geronimo. And um, they finally catch him. And he's put on a reservation in Florida. And you can't think about being uprooted from your home. You're taking all of the dignity away from you. You are a nobody. You're not allowed to leave the reservation. You've lost loved ones. I, I just can't imagine everything being stripped from this guy. Towards the end of his life, there were a couple Dutch Reformed missionaries that take the gospel to him. And I don't know if you know about Dutch Reformed missionaries, but they're serious. They're not just, you know, hey, walk an altar, you're in. I mean, they, were, they had examined him, they investigated his faith, all these kind of things, and they receive him into a Reformed mission church. Also, Dutch Reformed missionaries are very serious about discipline, so... You know, they're not, if they need to be excommunicated, they'll excommunicate you. I mean, they're not, they're serious about this stuff. Geronimo struggled with alcoholism. Uh, most Indians did. Uh, he was still well respected. Um, anyway, uh, he testified of his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, not only to, to uh, these missionaries, but to anybody that talked to him. The Jesus way was the way, his only hope of salvation. But I think he still struggled with many demons in his heart, in his life. I'm not Geronimo's judge. I don't know if he truly knew Christ, but I am not going to be surprised on the judgment day if I see him there. See him living with Christ in glory. And all of those hardened channels of suffering and pain and guilt removed, being perfectly cleansed. And I put Geronimo on my wall because I like the whole story of Geronimo, but because it's a reminder to me that the people that we minister to the gospel with are people just like him. You guys go through struggles, and the people that are out there that are going through life and have rebellion and pain and suffering, they need Jesus, and they need a God who is faithful even through faithlessness. That's what they need. Not so that they can remain faithless, so that he can continue to overcome and work, and that is our hope. And I pray that we would be that kind of church, that we would be, have high standards and want to go towards holiness, but we would also be people that say, oh yeah, you've blown it? Okay. We have a God that can overcome those who have blown it. That's what we want to be. Oh, for grace to trust him more. For he cannot 
deny himself. Amen.